Will you join me in prayer? God, we come to you this day full of the things of the world, full of the things of our life, full of the things of our hearts, and we offer those to you. We place them at the foot of the cross, and we give them to you, and we let go of them for this moment, for this hour, for this time, so that we can be open to hear your words, so we can be open to hearing you speak into that place. We ask that you fill us up and that you send us out. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable, acceptable to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. So we've been following along the story of the Israelites for a couple of weeks. We started out with Abraham um, and, the, and his commandment to go and be fruitful and multiply and that his descendants would number the stars. We followed Abraham to his story with his son Isaac, where that promise of God was tested, where Abraham's faith, ability to act out his faith was tested, where Isaac's faith in his father and in God was tested. We continued on to hear the story of Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, and their fight, their inability to get along because of Jacob's tricksterism, and their eventual path to reconciliation. We are now several hundred years later. Jacob has had all 12 of his sons, and his next to youngest son, Joseph, was sent to Egypt by some nefarious acts of his brothers. Joseph was um, a fruit of the tree of his father in a little bit of ways. He bragged about his favorite status in the family until his brothers couldn't take it anymore and sold him into slavery. Joseph was sent to Egypt, and through the power of God, through the gifts of God that he was given, he was able to rise to a position of power and status in the society. Joseph ended up saving the lives of not just the Egyptians, but also many, many people who traveled from Israel into Egypt because they were running from a famine. They were running from a lack of food, which is not all that uncommon in a desert environment before we figured out things like irrigation. And so Joseph welcomed his brothers in. And Joseph and his brothers did what God had told them to do, which was to be fruitful and multiply. For 600 years, Joseph's family, Joseph's ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, did not listen to God's direction to be fruitful and multiply. Abraham had all of two children. Jacob, Isaac had all of two children. Eventually, Jacob did have the 12 and finally listened to God. And it wasn't until they were in Egypt that God's family began to expand. They were known when they migrated as the Israelites. The Israelites named after Jacob, whose name was changed. Basically, they were called sons of, of, of Israel, sons of the one who wrestled with God. They grew fruitful and multiplied. Eventually, memory faded, and Joseph's role in this whole expedition disappeared in the memories of the Egyptians, and all that they knew was that there was a large group of people who didn't agree with them, who didn't live the same lifestyle that they lived, didn't have the same beliefs that they did, didn't necessarily live life the way that they did, and they were becoming fruitful and multiplying. Bible tells us that Pharaoh was afraid. 
Pharaoh was afraid of this group of people. And so Pharaoh did what many of us do, which is to change their name. He took away from them the name that they claimed for themselves and gave them instead a name, a piru in Hebrew, which means basically worthless, people who are worthless, people who had no status in society. And so originally the Hebrews were not an ethnic group. They were just people who were poor, people who were of an economic class, of a particular style of life, people who lived a particular way. And they took away their name and gave them a slur instead to belittle them and to make them smaller because they were afraid. Pharaoh was afraid of these people because he did not have power or control over them. You see, Pharaoh had Pharaoh's position because the people of Egypt believed that Pharaoh was God on earth, that Pharaoh was the, not literally the rep, not a representation of God. Pharaoh was literally God on earth. The Hebrew people did not believe that, for they knew that God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, was more than a person was bigger than Pharaoh, did not live the limitations that Pharaoh as a human person lived. And so as long as the Hebrew people existed, Pharaoh's power and Pharaoh's status and Pharaoh's ability to be God was challenged. And so Pharaoh acted out of his fear. And he rounded these people up and he made them make bricks. He made them build things to elevate Pharaoh's status. The great cities that were read earlier, Pithom and Ramses, we are finding evidence of today. Archaeologists are even now in the desert digging up the remnants of these bricks that the Hebrews laid thousands of years ago. And they did that because they were afraid. They were afraid because these were people were different. They looked different, they smelled different, they acted different. There's a saying that says that anger is fear turned outwards towards other people. That when we're angry with other people, when we're angry with ourselves, what happens where it's coming from is not anger, it's fear. And there's basically two wells of fear that we see in our world today. The first is a fear of scarcity. We are afraid that things are going to run out, that there's not going to be enough for everybody. There's not going to be enough of whatever to go around. There's not going to be enough money to go around. There's not going to be enough power to go around. There's not going to be enough clothes to go around. There's not going to be enough toilet paper at the store for all of us to survive this pandemic without toilet paper, right? There's not going to be enough Christmas toys of the exact toy that my child wants, and so let's get in a fight on Black Friday because that's definitely the Christmas spirit, right? We're afraid there's not enough love to go around. The second fear is a fear of inadequacy or failure. It's a fear that we're going to not know what to do, that there's going to be a situation which arises or a world in which we live that we don't know who we are and we don't know how to behave and we don't know how to act and we don't know what the rules are of this world. And both of those things are coming out in our lives as anger and as hatred. And it's enough to go around. 
The one thing that is not scarce in our world is our ability to diminish other people, to make them flat, to make them other, to round them all up in one big group and make them bad. And the truth is that nobody on any side, ever side, all four sides, seven sides, however many sides there are of any issue are all bad or all good. But it's easy for us to paint a picture of that. It's easier for us to do that because it's easier for us to be in control when others are outside. So let's talk about that fear of scarcity. The Bible tells us that God, the God who created the world, the God who created everything, the God who created you and me, created enough for everyone. That there's nowhere we can go, nothing we can do that takes us outside of the protection of God, the providence of God, the caring of God. There is more than enough. There is more than enough. There is more than enough to go around if we trust in God to provide that. I remember sitting at the table with my grandmother before she died. And we were talking about the Great Depression, and I know that hit everybody differently, but she grew up in um, Colorado, which was hit very hard by the Great Depression because they had the Dust Bowl, and then they had the Great Depression, so there was no food, and then there were no jobs. And she lived on a train car. Her whole family, there were four of them, lived on a train car because her father was a Pinkerton detective on the train line. Four people. They had chickens on this train car, guys. Right? And they zoomed around the West Coast on this train car with chickens that they would let out at each stop and then let back onto the train. And I said, well, Grandma, I mean, that sounds awful. It was terrible. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. It was wonderful. We had more than enough. We had more than enough of what we needed. We had more than enough. We were lucky. We had a place to live and a job, and we had chickens that we could feed and we could live off their eggs if some people's chickens lay eggs, not ours. And so this myth of scarcity is about perspective. It's about remembering that maybe we won't have exactly what we want. Maybe we won't have exactly what we think we need, but we will always have enough to survive, to live. Most of us are not very far away from having family, friends who love us and care for us, who'd be more than happy to give us a place to stay. And so our fear of scarcity is really just a fear of the unknown, of not knowing how to live that world, which takes us to two, part two, which is our fear of inadequacy or failure. Um, I was drawing with my children the other day. We were drawing pictures. Um, and it used to be a request for things like dogs. Like, can you draw this picture of a dog? And I was like, sure, dog, dog. Yeah, great. And they were like four, so I could get by with that. But um, I was requested to draw Harry Potter in the Hogwarts castle. Thank you. Yeah. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen me draw, but that's not like my top 27 skills. Right? <laughs> So I very diligently tried to draw the castle and Harry, and I put a scar on his head so you would know it was Harry, because other than that, it was just a stick figure with some hair. 
<laughs> and my child looked at me and said, Mom, you're a really good drawer. And I was like, yes, I am. <laughs> Should have taken a picture. She said, and she said, I'm not a good drawer. And by the way, 1,000% better drawer than I am. And I said, you know what the difference is? I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to draw this picture because it's fun. And if you think it's a bad picture, then that's on you. This is my picture, and I'm happy with it because I drew it, right? I don't care. If I showed this picture of Hogwarts to anyone, and they were to say to me, that's not a very good picture of Hogwarts. My ego is not wrapped up in this picture in any way, right? I am an inadequate artist, but I had fun. And if you've ever lived life, if you've ever lived life very long, there are two things that are going to happen to you. I don't care who you are. One, you're not going to be very good at something. And two, you're going to fail at something. Probably everything. Right? There is a myth that all of us are walking around knowing what we're doing. And I guarantee you that 90% of us spend most days going, what in the heck am I doing? I'm trying my best. I'm doing my best. I'm doing what I can do. But I don't know if this is any good or not. It just gets amplified. You go to work, and you try to do your best, and you do your best. You try. You do. But you don't really know. And good Lord, every time my kids reach a new developmental milestone, I feel like I had parenting licked, and then they grow up, and now I have no idea what I'm doing, right? And it just keeps happening as they get older. Like, in your 20s, I don't know how to parent a 20-year-old. I'm not going to know when I'm there. I don't know how to parent a 40-year-old. Eventually, with modern medicine, I may be parenting a 90-year-old. Who knows? I don't know how to do that. I'm going to fail, and that's okay. We do not need to be afraid of that. Because what fear does is turn into anger. Anger at ourselves for not being good enough. Angry at our children for not living up to whatever ridiculous expectation we may have had for them in that situation. Anger at other people for not, like, you know, doing what we expected them to do. Our fear of inadequacy, our fear of scarcity, our fear of not being good enough only makes it harder for us to live in this world. And so I am reminded of the promise of God. The promise at the beginning when God created the world and said, I will be with you as you venture through this world. The promise to Moses when the Hebrew people eventually were liberated and freed that he would go with them into the desert, a pillar of fire before them so that they knew the way to go. They still messed it up. God was still with them. The promise of Jesus who said, I go before you to make a house with many rooms. I have a place for you. The promise of Paul, who said, this table is big enough for everybody. This problem that we have is, is nothing at the table of God, where everybody is welcome, whether you know what you're doing or not, whether you have enough or not, whether you are in power or not. We have the witness of the people who have gone before us, who have lived a life of faith, who tell us that the things, the problems that we think are the end of the world are not the end of the world. You're going to screw up your kids somehow, I promise. You're going to mess up at work somehow. 
you're going to be afraid of things and of the world. And there's going to be all this stuff that comes at you. But they share a life of witness which reminds us that nothing is outside of the glory of God. That nothing is outside of what God can do for you. That nothing is without God's grace in the midst of it. And so as we look at these names, we remember people who messed up, who struggled sometimes, who didn't always know what they were doing, even when it looked like it. And I remember people like my grandparents who said, no, we had enough. I always had enough because God was with me. And so our challenge this morning is to not become like Pharaoh and like the Egyptian people who let their fear turn them into people of hatred and of anger who could not find a place for everyone at the table. Amen.